You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Peak Church, located in Apex, North Carolina. Our church is striving to welcome all who are feeling disconnected from God. And so our hope is that over the next several minutes, you will connect with the God that we are talking about, and you'll resonate deeply with the life that this God wants for you. We hope you enjoy. Our scripture passage today is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, verses 7 through 15. When you pray, don't pour out a flood of empty words as the Gentiles do. They think that by saying many words, they'll be heard. Don't be like them, because your Father knows what you need before you ask. Pray like this. Our Father who is in heaven, uphold the holiness of your name. Bring in your kingdom so that your will is done on earth as it's done in heaven. Give us the bread we need for today. Forgive us the ways we have wronged you, just as we will forgive those who have wronged us. And don't lead us into temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. If you forgive others their sins, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your sins. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. again, church, and welcome back for what is now week three of our most recent sermon series entitled Risky Prayers. Risky Prayers. One of the things that is uh, true of faith, I don't care how deep and how long you've been a person of faith, one of the things, the traps, the temptations that we fall into sometimes is not always paying close attention to what are the implications of what I talk to God about. What are the consequences of the things uh, that I pray for, that I request of God in the world? And so the whole uh, sort of hope of this sermon series, the design of this sermon series is that hopefully by the end of it, one of the things that will happen to each and every one of us is that we will be people of prayer. We will be a praying church, but we will start to really pay close attention so that we pray what we mean and mean what we pray. I hope that one of the end results of this sermon series is that when you pray, you pray as if someone's actually listening, that it actually makes a difference, that it might actually do something in the world or in you. And so the way the sermon series is going to work is every single week what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at specific prayers that are prayed in the Old Testament and in the New. Today what we're going to do is we're going to move into Jesus' prayer life. What are some of the risky prayers, consequential prayers that Jesus And today actually marks what we might think of as like a a mini-series within a larger series. Because for the next three weeks, we're going to unpack the Lord's Prayer. We pray this prayer. If you come to this church, we pray this prayer every single week. But I'd be willing to bet that not many of us have spent a ton of time thinking through, what are the implications of all these things that Jesus tells us to pray for? Jesus tells us, coaches us 
to ask for. For example, the first petition, the first thing that we're going to talk about, we're going to sort of dive into, is what does it mean? What are the implications and the consequences of praying this prayer? Give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. I don't care how much time you spent in church. Chances are you have uttered those words a whole bunch of times and or you've heard these words a bunch of times. But what does it mean? Again, what are the consequences? What might this require of me? Let's dive in. So if you have your Bibles with you, your smart devices, and you want to follow along and track along with our conversation, or if you're watching this online, you want to hit pause and find a Bible real quick, go ahead and do so. Again, both today and for the next three weeks, we're going to be camped out in Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 through 15. And to give you a little bit of backdrop, to give you a little bit of context of what's happening here in this moment, is uh, Jesus is coaching. Uh, this is the only time in the entire Gospels where Jesus gives literal instruction on, when, on how and what to pray for. Now, there's a couple of reasons for this. Number one, uh, and you heard this just a moment ago, the first reason why Jesus gives us literal, like a script almost, of what and how to pray for, uh, the reason why he does this, number one, is because we get a little wordy. Right? Right? Mm-hmm. You know who you are. That's right. Yeah, sometimes you're praying. You pray for one request. It leads to another request. And then you find yourself 10 minutes later praying for the entire world. Right? So you're just sort of yammering on, not necessarily thinking through, what exactly am I saying? I don't really know, but hopefully it sounds good. Good enough to be heard. And so the second, and the second reason is because what the Lord's Prayer is meant to do is it's meant to serve as an outline and give us an insight into the types of things we ought to be praying for and talking to God about. And so when you come to this prayer that we're going to highlight today, that we're going to dig into today, one of the things that you'll notice is that this prayer, God, give us the, the bread that we need today. Give us uh, our, what we need uh, today. One of the things that's really important to point out about, again, the context, is that the audience listening to Jesus preach is mostly, if not totally, Jewish. And so when they're listening to this and they see that line, give us the bread we need for today, it's important for us to know this would have evoked a really, really important memory in the history of Israel, the history of the Jewish people. The moment Jesus uttered those words, immediately everybody listening would have known what he's talking about. He would have been talking about the moment in time when, I mean, if you know the story, the Israelites escaped from uh, slavery. They escaped from captivity, and they wander out into the wilderness. And so in Exodus 16, we pick up with this story. And if you go in the Old Testament, you'll see that there's this point in the story in Exodus 16 where they've already escaped. They're out in the wilderness. They're out in the, the desert. They're waiting to get to the promised land. And they start to get really, really grumpy. Why? Well, because they're hot, and they're thirsty, and they're hungry. And take a look at this map. The particular moment where we are in Exodus chapter 16 is at the very, very bottom. See the very, very bottom of the Sinai Peninsula? So that's the uh, Sinai wilderness in that space. And it's right there where the story takes place about daily bread. And what you'll notice about that particular moment is that that's the midway point. That's the midway point, or some, you know, at least close to. And what you and I know is that oftentimes in so many things, the hardest point of any journey is the midway point. Raise your hand if you like to run or if you like to exercise in some way. The hardest part of the entire exercise routine is at the midway point. Why? 
because you've gone too far, you can't turn back, okay? You can't rewind and just sort of go home, right? And it's also too far to see the end result. It's still, it's like the, the destination is still a little bit too far off. And so I'm a runner, and so my strategies for that is I just sort of buckle down and I try to muster grit and perseverance, and I also just muster up a lot of creativity. So I'll go, okay, four songs left. Okay, three songs left. And like, okay, and then when I'm on the home stretch, I'm like, okay, five houses left, five houses, three houses left. I'm almost there. You can make it. And so you're trying to find ways to sort of make it to the end. And so this is where they are. They're at this point where it's too far to go home. And the destination is too far off to see. And it's at this precise location where they cannot meet their own needs, they can't help themselves anymore, that God sends help. In Exodus chapter 16, when they reach this midway point, we learn that what God does is God makes bread rain down from the sky onto them. This bread is called manna. Bread might actually be a bit misleading because manna actually looks like this. looks like crusty old croutons. And so uh, this is actually what rained down from heaven day after day. And it was God's way of fulfilling God's promise that you're my children and I'm going to look out for you and I'm going to provide for you, especially when you can't provide for yourself. So now let's rewind back to Jesus' prayer. To pray those words, God, give us our daily bread. Give us the bread we need for today. Friends, this is a prayer of several things. This is a prayer of humility. This is a prayer of trust. This is a prayer that you believe God's going to provide what you need when you need it. For some of you, this is the prayer that you prayed when you lost your job. You lost your source of security. You lost your source of normalcy. And you don't know when the next job is coming along. You don't know where it's going to come from. Maybe for you, this is the prayer that you prayed uh, when you were struggling and waiting on a partner, waiting on someone to share and build a life with. Or maybe for you, this is the prayer that you had to pray when you were struggling to get pregnant or you were struggling to have children, and this is something you really wanted as your heart's desire, but you had no evidence that it was coming or when it was coming. This is the prayer that you pray every time you're lost in life. You don't know where to go. You don't know what the next step is. And you don't know what the end result is. All you know is, is you're desperately in need of someone to come and provide what you need. Last Sunday night, uh, this is what the prayer that my wife and I prayed when we were desperately waiting for Netflix to figure out their live streaming issues so we could watch the Love is Blind reunion. Anybody else? Anybody else? Yep. Yep. It's this prayer that you mutter to God when you can't figure out the solution to your issue and you are relying upon God to send it in God's timing. And so those of you who've been in those situations before, you've been in that predicament before, I don't even got to tell you how risky that prayer is, isn't it? It's risky in that moment to say, you know what, I need this, I know I need this, but I'm going to trust you, God, to provide it in your timing, in your way. It's risky to pray that prayer. For example, for starters, risk number one you will run if you ever dare to pray those prayers, uh, to utter those words. The first risk you will run if you pray that prayer to God is you might have to wait. Risk number one, if you ask God, you say, God, God, give me my daily bread, you might have to wait. 
Which, by the way, this is why most of us don't like to pray this prayer very much, do we? Yeah. Friends, you live in a world that not only dissuades waiting, not only finds waiting on anything inconvenient, but you're currently living in a world that is trying to get rid of all forms of waiting. You paying attention to that? Just a couple of days ago, I was working from home in the afternoon, and I counted them because I was curious. I saw five, count them, five Amazon trucks drive past my house. Why? Because now you don't have to wait. You can order something and get it in two days. Shoot, you can be just sort of like emotionally shopping before bed, and you can order something, and it will be there by the time you wake up. Do you remember when five to seven business days seemed fast? Remember that? First thing I ever ordered that came in five to seven business days was inline rollerblades. You remember when those were cool? Now the only people who wear them in my neighborhood are the guys with really tight pants. Really tight pants. There's children who live here. Please don't do that. But you live in this world. You're living in this world that is constantly trying to get rid of waiting. And here's what's so ironic. So as your pastor, one of the things that's interesting for me to point out to you is that you live in a world that's trying to get rid of all forms of waiting. And if you read scripture over and over and over and over again, what you'll find is the most powerful, transformational, impactful things that ever happened to the people of God happened during times of waiting. I would argue that waiting might just be one of the, the most, one of the most transformational spiritual disciplines you can ever go through. It's up there with solitude, with silence, with fasting, with Sabbath, all these things that are really hard for us. It's one of the most impactful and effective things to grow your and my spiritual walk. If you don't believe me, James says it perfectly. In James chapter 1, he says it this way. He says, my brothers and sisters, think of the various tests you encounter as occasions for joy. After all, you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And this endurance complete its work so that you might be fully mature, fully complete, and lacking in nothing. What James is trying to get his audience to hear, what Jesus is trying to get his audience to hear, is just because it's fast... Doesn't mean it's right. Just because I can get something fast, a fast solution, a fast meeting of this need, doesn't mean that's what God had intended for you. I learned this uh, really the hard way when I was first uh, waiting uh, for my first appointment, my first job as a pastor. This summer will mark nine years uh, in serving as lead pastor here of this church. And I'll never forget, thank you, one person, uh, nine years ago, <laughs> nine years ago, I remember for four months leading up to graduation, four months, I had to just sit and wait and trust that in God's timing, God would provide the church for me. And I don't wait well so many opportunities just to fix it myself. Go and find, go and run after things on my own. But I was, had to trust that God would provide. And the things that I learned through that process, I'll share with you. And hopefully they're helpful. The four things I learned during that process is how to wait well. How to wait well, at least for me, is I have to do it with others. I can't do it alone. I'm not strong enough to do it alone. Number two, I'm going to do it with honesty. 
One of the things that I love about the Old Testament, specifically I love about the story of Moses, is that Moses is waiting in the wilderness, and he all the time is so honest with God about how frustrated he is. And what that teaches me is that I'm allowed to be that real with God. I'm allowed to be that raw with God. Thirdly, uh, it requires me to cling to the interim provisions. This is what the manna was. The manna was like the interim provision in route to the ultimate provision. And some of you know what I'm talking about. While you're waiting on the thing, God is faithful. God will provide the interim things to get you through. And fourthly, I learned that there's a spiritual danger to quick fixes. There's not an earthly danger. In fact, the earth, the world, will tell you, just solve it on your own. Go and fix on your own. Go, if you've got the money, you've got the resources, you've got the ability, go and meet your own needs by yourself. Don't wait on God. But I'm here to tell you as your pastor, there's a spiritual danger to that. And that's actually the one that comes in risk number two. So risk number one is you might have to wait. Risk number two, if you pray this prayer, if you mean it, if you pray the prayer, God, give me my daily bread. I trust your provision over my life. The second risk you'll run is you'll encounter resistance. You might just encounter strong resistance from people in your life who don't understand. <laughs> what do you mean? Why aren't you just like applying for all these jobs? Why aren't you just marrying this person? Why aren't you just fixing it yourself? If people suspect you're not taking their advice, or if you're not doing it on your own, mustering yourself up and fixing the issue on your own instead of waiting on God, they'll push back on you. And we see this all over Scripture. You see this with Job, right? All of Job's friends are like, what are you doing? Stop. You're obviously doing something wrong. Like, fix it. Jesus' friends, Jesus' disciples say, stop talking about your death and all that stuff. Like, you're really killing the mood around here. Like, there's all these times where in Scripture you learn it's not your enemies all the time who resist you, but it's people who love you. They care about you. They think they know what's best for you. As a preacher, one of the things that's a really important practice for me is whenever I sort of study and I find uh, these things uh, in the Scriptures is I not only start searching, uh, it's important for me to not search in my own life for where I'm doing it right, but for where I've done it wrong, where I got it wrong. And uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, in college, I was one of those friends. I was someone else's resistance. It was in uh, my, the life of my friend David. Here's a picture of David. I think I've introduced you to him before. Uh, this is us in high school. And uh, David, in college, so mind you, we're 18, 19, so please uh, hold your judgments. But we're 18 or 19, and he comes to me, he comes to my dorm room in college, he's like, hey, going through some relational issues. Like, I don't really know what to do with my girlfriend, and we got questions, and like, I don't know if this is the one. And it's a private Christian college, and so uh, there's a little term called ring by spring. And so uh, if you don't know in the first five minutes you're supposed to marry that person, that's the expectation, then you go into an existential crisis. Anyway, so David's having that. He comes to my dorm room. He's asking me all these questions. And so I've totally bought into all of that, and I'm one of those people who's a fixer. Raise your hand if you're a fixer. You like fixing other people's problems. I seriously love it so freaking much. Anyway, I'm like, bro, I got you. Like, I got all of it. I got it all figured out. I don't even know this girl very well. But if you got questions and you got issues, that seems like a flag that you should break up with her. Here's a picture of them two years later on their wedding day. Here's a picture of them today with their two beautiful children. You see... Oftentimes, 
oftentimes, we're desperately searching for the path of least resistance. It's amazing to me how it's almost like my default mode that I'll just take the path of least resistance without even thinking about it. And that's exactly what I was coaching my friend to do. And thank God, when he left my dorm room, he went to chapel and he prayed. And he checked my advice, he checked my counsel, he checked my resistance with God's voice and counsel and guidance over his life and didn't listen. Thank God. They're my closest friends to this day. She's forgiven me, kind of. <laughs> and some of you, as you're listening to this, you've, you've, uh, this is uncomfortable because uh, you've done this, haven't you? Yeah. yeah, yeah, me too. I took the easy way. I took the quick fix. Instead of waiting on God and wandering down that unknown path, Especially if I've got, like, the money or the ability or whatever to fix it and meet that need myself. I'm going to do that. I ain't waiting on nobody. I'm going to fix it, right? But as your pastor, again, this is part of my job is to point out that while you will not catch any flack on earth for meeting and uh, offering, going down the path of least resistance and doing quick fixes to all of life's issues, there is a spiritual danger to it. And it looks like this. You see... Go to the next one, Carrie. This path that all of us are walking on, this path that all of us are walking on, there are going to be these moments indicated by these little circles. There's going to be these moments where you're going to be given the opportunity. You're going to be given the chance. Do I believe this prayer that God will provide? Do I trust that God's provision will come in time? Or should I just make my own way? And listen, we, you and I know this. We worship a God who, when you bail on God's path, God doesn't turn his back on you. God doesn't give up on you. We worship a God of second chances, third chances. So it ain't a problem. It ain't an issue on God's side. Here's the issue, though. The more and more you make your own way, the easier it gets. The more and more and more I don't trust nobody else for someone else's provision and providing over my life, the easier it gets and the harder it gets to return back and even have a desire to want to trust God in the first place. So it won't be God who turns God's back on you, but you're running the risk of eventually waking up one day and number one, two things. Number one, you actually fundamentally can't do hard things anymore. Because you've just trained yourself. Oh, if it gets hard, I'll just find the easy way. I'll just find the path of least resistance. So when hard things come, you're actually ill-equipped. You don't have the tools to do it. And secondly, you'll wake up one day and you'll realize you actually have very little interest or very little desire in what God's path is for your life. You've grown so accustomed. You've grown so hardened to just doing it your way. Find the quick fix that you don't actually care anymore what God has to say, or what God would give you if God had the chance. And that leads to the final risk. Friends, the final risk I want to share with you as your pastor, that if you pray this prayer and you mean it, if you pray this prayer, you make this request of God, I'm telling you, don't do it lightly, because if you pray this prayer, God, I trust your provision, I trust your providing, that when I can't meet my needs myself and I don't know what's best for me in my life, I'm going to trust that you're going to provide. If you dare to pray that prayer, 
third risk is you're going to have to back it up. At some point, the words won't be enough. You'll have to back it up. You'll have to act out that belief instead of just talking about it all the time. I've gotten to this place in my spiritual journey where I just don't, I just don't care as much about what people say they believe. I want to see it. I want to see what kind of God you believe in. I want to see what that faith looks like. I don't necessarily want to hear it no more. And I'm not saying that people out there who say one thing but have not yet, are not yet willing to act upon it, I'm not saying their faith is fake. I'm just saying their faith is like beta faith, right? Still in testing, still in development, right? In fact, by the way, if you were not here this past fall, we created a tool for you on this. You may have missed this, but we created a tool called Ordo. Ordo. And it's, what it's meant to do is it's meant to be a tool that helps you figure out where am I in my faith journey? Where am I in my spiritual development? We do this in so many other things, in your physical fitness and all these different other things. So we decided to create one in terms of our faith. Where am I in my spiritual faith? And then the same website, after you take the assessment, it gives you prescriptions. It says, well, based off of where you are in your faith, here's what we encourage you to start practicing, to see the growth, see the development in your faith that you hope actually happens. And what I said when I, we rolled this whole thing out last fall, when we preached upon it, as I said this, I said, if you go to the next slide, Carrie, that your faith actually doesn't become real until like stage five, which is labeled sanctification, level five. Because you see, at level five, stage five, you go from knowing about faith to actually doing it. Now you start to figure out, what does all this knowledge mean practically for my life. That's when it becomes real. I'll close here. Friends, the reason why I'm so passionate about this is because you know this is true. You know this is true. That it's super tempting. It's super tempting to say things in life, to proclaim things in life, and have no intention ever of proving it. I do this in my own life all the time. I do this with like silly stuff, right? So like I'll say stuff that I have no intention of proving. I'm watching the NBA playoffs right now and so last night I'm watching the game and they miss a shot and I'm like, I can make that. And Marie, uh, my wife, doesn't let me off the hook. She's like, oh, oh yeah, with 60,000 people screaming in your face and with a bunch of professional players out there, you would make that shot. Oh, that's cute. Yeah, that's real cute. I'm one of those people who I would love to just put like one average Joe on the court with the rest of them just to see how bad we all would be in comparison to them, right? So we say it all the time about stuff that doesn't really have much consequence. But the problem is we also say it about stuff that's really, really, really important too. We say things without thinking through. What would it actually look like to prove that I believe this? Earlier this week, we were reminded of yet another example when an unarmed black boy was shot yet again in this country, Ralph Yarl. And I don't know what that experience was like for you, but I remember when I, the news first surfaced of his shooting, and thank God he is still alive. But I remember when the news first surfaced, I immediately thought about all the things that I have said, all the times I have said or thought or I've heard other people say. Things like, well, you know, 
If Martin Luther King were here today, I know he got a lot of flack, but if, the, if the, he's here today or if the civil rights stuff was happening today, I know I'd say something. I know I'd do something. Prove it. Prove it. You see, friends, I'm a strong believer that what you do now is a reflection of what you do then. Prove it. In life, it's just not enough. It's not enough to say the type of person, to talk about the type of person I want to be. It's not enough for me to say the things that I believe to be true. At some point, you're going to have to back it up if you actually meant it. And so you go back to this prayer that Jesus encourages us to pray, commands we ought to pray. God, I trust your provision over my life. I trust you to give me my needs. God, give me today my daily bread. It's one thing to say those words. It's entirely another to know what it's like to walk day after day, week after week, with your hands empty, hopelessly and helplessly trusting that God will provide And so if you've never had to do that, or I want to challenge you a little bit, if you've never chosen to do that, do you really know that this is a God who provides? Do you really know if this God is worth committing your life to? Do you really know if this faith you claim to have is real. My pastor summed it up perfectly. My old pastor used to say this. He used to say, you just don't know what you got in God until God's all you got. And I challenge you to have a faith where you learn that firsthand. Thank you for listening to The Peak Podcast. Make sure you subscribe wherever podcasts can be found. For more information on how to get connected with our church, please visit us at thepeakchurch.org.